Football as snack food make for a wonderful party, but uh, you've been to better parties, haven't you? Like what? Birthday party, Paula's birthday party specifically. Hmm? Barbecue, okay. There's been some good barbecue parties, yes. For a lot of people, their wedding is probably the biggest and most expensive party they will ever throw. Um, for Pasadenans, the Rose Parade counts a party with millions of people um, partying in the streets, the partying the night before. I still see the empty, sh empty shelves in the supermarket of tortillas and marshmallows, because <laughs> those were a premium for throwing at the night before. But I don't think that any party we've been to compares to the ones that, the one that I'm gonna tell you about that happened in Bible time. Some people said it was the best part of the festival when the four lampstands were lit. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, one of three pilgrimage feasts, journeys to Jerusalem with happy throngs and multitudes of people filling the city in joyful celebration. It was also called the Festival of Booths because each family made their booth, a homemade structure sturdy enough to last a week and disposable enough to take down afterwards. It happened every autumn after the fall harvest. The parents were free from the daily grind of work. The children were free from chores, free from routine, free from their parents as they ran through the streets shouting and playing. A week-long party linked to the ancestors' journey through the wilderness to the promised land. They lived in booths because their ancestors lived in tents as they made that journey in the wilderness years. It was a celebration of harvest. It was a thanksgiving to God for his graciousness and gifts. And of course, there were offerings in the temple. There was a special drink offering. A water libation was poured out on the altar, among others. There were torch-lit processions in the temples and parades in the streets. But some people said, that the best part of the festival happened on the first night of the seven-day party when the lampstands were lit. They were impressively huge, these four golden lampstands, over 75 feet tall. The four of them were placed in the temple court of women. And when it got dark on that first day of the feast, they were lit while priests and Levites were standing on the 15 steps of the inner court, singing the songs of ascent with musicians playing their instruments. We don't have the music of those songs, but we do have the words in Psalm 120 to 131. The men took over the court of women during the celebration, because of course they did, dancing and burning their own torches, and the women looked on behind lattice enclosures. But when those massive candelabras were lit, they produced so much light that it was said that there was not a courtyard in all of Jerusalem that did not reflect that light. When those lampstands were lit, the city went from dark to light. 
and the joy that this light brought. Of course, there had to be dancing and shouting. The light of those huge lampstands was to remind the people of the pillar of, of fire that led them through the wilderness when it was dark on their journey. It was to remind the people of the Shekinah, the glory of God. Perhaps Psalm 102 was read, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. You are wrapped in light as with a garment. Or maybe Psalm 27, the Lord is my and my salvation. Or Psalm 4, may the light of your face shine on us, O Lord. Or maybe some people looking on that great brilliant light springing out of darkness remembered that God's first act of creation was to create light, bring forth light. Maybe some of them remembered that prophetic a promise of a Messiah which started with the words, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Those candelabras lit in the dark, shooting light into every home, brought such joy to the people. And it was in the context of this celebration, which is the Festival of Booze, and this lighting of the lampstand that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And the hearts of those who heard either bubbled with joy or bubbled with anger at these words. We are in the season of Lent. This week, along with all many churches all over the world, it's time to turn our face towards the cross to look at Jesus' obedience to his Father, to mark the road of suffering, to look at why Jesus went to the cross. And in our new sermon series, we will examine the I am statements of Jesus, and we're getting to the heart of who Jesus is. And we start with his claim, I am the light of the world. Now, John places this statement in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, where the people who heard it couldn't help but connect his statement to the ceremonial lighting of those lampstands. But there's another little piece of the context that is important that we need to know before we read the passage. This I am uh, statement comes immediately after the woman who was caught in adultery by herself, apparently, because where was the man I always say? Anyway. She was caught in adultery, and the faith leaders tested Jesus by wanting to stone her. And Jesus was writing in the sand with his finger. And then when he stood up, he said, let the one who has no sin throw the first stone. And all of them melted away until only Jesus was left. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then we come to John 8, verse 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What big words, not, not in themselves, but in their meaning. The light of the lampstands reached all of Jerusalem, but Jesus says he is the light of the world. It's an exponentially bigger light that he's talking about 
Jesus invites a decision to follow him in his words. It's an invitation to discipleship and a promise to those who follow him that they will have the light of life. So it isn't just illumination that Jesus is talking about. It's living, it's goodness, it's joy, it's salvation. Life just uh, enlarges the scope and the meaning of what he means when he says, I am the light. Those who follow him receive the light of life. And by contrast, by implication, those who choose not to will be left in darkness and the opposite of life, stagnation, decay, and death. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders at this point. What are they going to say? Ay, no seas tan exagerado. That's what we would say in Spanish when someone says something dumb or grandiose. Here we would say, don't be so extra. That's what we would say today. What are the religious leaders going to say? That's ridiculous. You can't be light. People aren't light. Are they going to roll their eyes and walk away? Are they going to offer to pray with this poor, deluded man who is standing in front of them that he would come into his right mind? What are they going to say? Verse 13, then the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying on your own behalf. Your testimony is not valid. Interesting. They don't focus on the meaning of his words at all. They, seem, they simply seek to dismiss him on a technicality. How very much like the lawyers that they were. According to their law, what Jesus claimed about himself is not admissible as truth. Verse 14, Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid because I know where I have come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Where did Jesus come from? And where is he going? Okay, good. Some of you passed the pop quiz this morning. If we don't understand the origin and the destination of Jesus, we don't get him at all. We don't understand him. Jesus uh, follows by saying, you judge by human standards. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is valid, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, that's a big claim. And it isn't as if Jesus hasn't judged anybody. He's been pretty harsh on the religious leaders in his judgment of them. He will eject the money changers out of the temple. That's judgment on them. Uh, and eventually, everybody will come before his judgment. But what, he, what he's saying, though, is that this is not my time to judge. He came for the purpose of salvation, not for the purpose of judging and condemning people. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Jesus could have thrown that first stone himself, but he said, neither do I condemn you. So he's just saying right now, this is not the judgment time right now. Verse 17, in your law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses, had to be two male witnesses, is valid. I testify on my own behalf, and the Father who testifies me, testi tes who sent me testifies on my behalf. And then they said to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. 
He spoke these words while he was teaching in the treasury of the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And the treasury of the temple, by the way, was in the easternmost court, which was the court of women, where the lampstands were when he said that. Started that whole thing by saying, I am the light of the world. Now, the closer Jesus got to his death, the more he talked about his pre-existence. And this was a source of constant confusion and bewilderment. It required deep faith from his followers, even when they didn't fully understand. And it resulted in rejection and anger from many others. And as I have read the Gospels, I am constantly irritated by the fact that Jesus doesn't talk more plainly and just say things, just say things linearly, say things clearly. But then I think about his perspective. How can he communicate his origin to us when we have no capacity for understanding it? So I was looking at my favorite comedian, Nate Bargatze, and he really helped me to understand what it must have been like for Jesus. Nate says he is, he's a self-proclaimed dumb guy and he says he would make the worst time traveler. This is what he says. I've thought about time travel like if I went back in time, knowing everything I know now, I don't think I would make a difference. If I went back to the 20s and saw some guy on an old phone, I would be like, hey, eventually you have phones that you put in your pocket. And he would say, yeah, how do they do it? And I'd be like, I don't know how they're doing it. It's like a, maybe a satellite or something like that. And then they would say, well, what's a satellite? Well, I shouldn't have even brought that up then. It's like a round metal dish or something that's got to go pretty high in the sky, pretty high in the air. I honestly don't think I could prove I'm from the future. They'd want some proof, so they'd say, well, who's the next president? <laughs> oh, boy. That's what he said. So Jesus was not just a time traveler. He was a heaven to earth traveler. He was a dimension traveler. He was a divine to human traveler. He had to communicate the truth of his identity to people who had no category to put that into. So how did Jesus communicate his pre-existence, his being the word at creation, his place in the Trinity, the truth of his identity, which we cannot understand with our human minds. He talked about it with a metaphor that everybody has a personal living reference to of being a son to the Father. Now, not all of us are sons, some of us are daughters, but all of us have a father and not all of us have a father whose character exemplifies the character of God, but we know something about what that relationship should be like so that we, we get what Jesus is talking to. We may not get it, you know what I'm saying? But we get it through that relationship, what he's saying about himself. Where did you come from, Jesus? My father sent me. Where are you going to be with my father? Who backs you up? Who testifies to you and what you're saying? My dad. You want witnesses? You got me. You got my dad. And my dad beats your dad every day. Your dad is Moses. My dad is Moses' is God. 
Therefore, knowing, knowing Jesus, his coming and his going, what he's saying, knowing Jesus' tight, intricate, unbreakable connection to the Godhead as son to father, even while he's taking on flesh, even while he's here on earth, knowing Jesus. Now we're going to look at that claim of his, I am the light of the world. Have you ever been out camping far from the city lights and at night you look up into the dark sky and you see the stars and see even the Milky Way? What happens inside of you at seeing those lights? Have you ever been on a dark path at night and you forgot to bring a flashlight and your phone is dead and you wonder how you'll get around, but when your eyes adjust, you realize it's a full moon and you're amazed that you can see everything and you're amazed that there are moon shadows? Just a little light, just a reflection of light, just the suggestion of light in utter darkness helps to orient ourselves. But Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, this is not a good picture. <laughs> this is not it. Jesus holding a candle is not the light of the world. That's too little light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. This one is more like it. Jesus is light enough for every single corner of the world. And there are so many dark corners of our world, aren't there? And Jesus promised his light to every person who follows him, every person who says Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Our first experience of light, of Jesus being the light, comes as he illumines our, illuminates our sin. And it's a painfully honest and humility, humiliating look at what we'd rather keep hidden. But once we confess and repent, and once we accept his forgiveness, we realize the benefit, the gift of Jesus' light. We will never, ever again be in darkness. Jesus' light abides with us. And when do we need light? We need light when we don't know the way forward or when we don't know which way to turn. We need light when there is an obstacle in our path. We need light to get out of trouble. Just as the plants need light in order to grow, we need Jesus' light to grow healthy, robust faith for life, Jesus says. We need his light to draw us to himself. Do we even realize what a gift it is to walk in the light of Jesus? Because wherever we go, his light goes as well. And therefore, the light that the, of the world shines into places of pain and desperation and despair. The light of the world shines in the war zones. The light of the world shines where Christians find themselves lonely and pressed. Where to be a follower of Jesus is dangerous. We need light where there is evil where structures and systems perpetuate injustice. Dr. Martin Luther King fought against that formidable entrenched evil of racism, and he knew that light 
doesn't just illuminate neutrally. Light is not neutral. He said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Light driving, you see the active force of light driving out darkness. Jesus' light is an active force for good. We need Jesus' light in so many and varied ways, and eventually we will need his light when we walk through that deep darkness through the valley of the shadow of death. So let's listen again to Jesus' words in John 8. 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And let joy bubble in our hearts. I want to end with a poem by Malcolm Geit, written about Jesus the light. And uh, this poem captures the pervasiveness of that light once we have turned to Jesus. I see your world in light that shines behind me, lit by a sun whose rays I cannot see. The smallest gleam of light still seems to find me or find the child who's hiding deep inside me. I see your light reflected in the water or kindled suddenly in someone's eyes. It shimmers through the living leaves of summer or spills from silver veins in leaden skies. It gathers in candles at our vespers. It concentrates in tiny drops of dew. At times it sings for joy. At times it whispers. But all the time, it calls me back to you. I follow you upstream through this dark night, my savior, source, and spring, my life and light. Let us rejoice, for Jesus is the light of the world. Bow your heads with me. Oh God, how we need your light. We need it in our own lives for clarity, for understanding, for seeing through your eyes at ourselves, to, through the excuses that we have or through the ways that we have, um, we have put in place that don't honor you. We need your light for our own soul's sake. So we come to you, we come to you, and we need your light everywhere we walk, in the places where there is such a need, there is such darkness, God. We need your light. So we come to you, we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.